If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 9. All right, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 33 through 37 this morning. Mark, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. I'll get it all right in just a second. (coughs) What we are looking at this morning, the question that we are asking ourselves, is going to be the same question that the disciples were asking themselves. And it's this. What is greatness? Or how do we determine greatness for ourselves? Or what does it mean to be great? Tonight, the Super Bowl will be played, and uh, Tom Brady will be one of the quarterbacks that are playing. Now, I'm not a fan of Tom Brady, uh, but it, 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 it really can't even be argued that he is seen as uh, one of, if not the greatest quarterbacks uh, in the history of the NFL. Uh, he's got, uh, he's been to, I think this is his ninth Super Bowl. Uh, he's won five Super Bowls. Uh, he is, uh, he holds multiple records in the NFL. Uh, he's made millions of dollars. He's, he, people would look at him and say he is great. And that he could even be the definition of greatness. He's got money. He's got a supermodel wife. He's the best at his job. People could look at him in our world and in our culture and say he defines what it means to be great. And in our world, maybe that's got some validity to it. But here's the reality for Christians. It's we exist in two worlds or two kingdoms. We have this world that we live in here. We go to work. We uh, go to school. We, this is the world that we live in. We are part of the society. We are part of this culture. But there's also another kingdom that we live in, and that's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus Christ talks about in the book of Mark. This is what it means to be a citizen of God. We've been adopted into God's family. We are God's children. He has changed who we are. We have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. And for us as Christians, the, the, the heavenly kingdom always trumps uh, the earthly kingdom. Now, now, that does not mean that we don't have to obey the laws. And that does not mean that we get to get out of paying our taxes and things of that nature. But what it means is the values, the purposes of the kingdom of God always outweigh the kingdom of this world. The definitions that God gives us in the kingdom of God are always greater than the way the world might define us. And so as we look at greatness this morning... Our world might define greatness as having the most stuff or being the best or being at the top rung. But what we're going to see this morning is Jesus defines greatness completely different. And so as we look at this, what I want us to do is take stock of our life and examine how do I define what it means to be great, what it means to be successful, what it means to, to be the best. Because our world says one thing and God says another. And we have to decide which kingdom is going to trump or or, or take superiority to the other one. So Mark chapter 9 verses 33 through 37. We'll read, I'll pray, and then we'll work our way through the passage. It says this. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. And Father God, we recognize that as Christians, God, we kind of have a dual existence. Father God, we live in this world where we are to exist and, and, and have relationships and make an impact. But we also understand that we live as, as part of your kingdom and part of your family. And Father God, I pray this morning as we examine uh, your word and we, we look at kind of practically how this impacts us uh, in this area of, of what it means to be great. Father God, I pray that you would speak through your word and through your spirit louder than my words ever could. Father God, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us. God, that you would meet us where we're at with what we need. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Yeah. All right. The first thing that I want us to see is the disciples' pride. Verses 33 through 34, this kind of sets, sets our story. It says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, that's Jesus asking the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for they had been argued, about, argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now understand, Jesus knows what they were talking about. Jesus understands every, Jesus, Jesus is God. And so he knows, if he knows the hearts of men and the hearts of the Pharisees, and, uh, then he knows what they were discussing, whether he heard them or not. He knew what was going on. And so he's taking this opportunity as an opportunity to teach, as an opportunity to instruct. And so he asked them, what were y'all talking about? Now, the fact that the disciples refused to answer shows us that they knew that they were in trouble. It shows us that they knew that they had been arguing about who was greatest, and that probably was not the greatest thing for them to be doing. So because of that, they're kind of, they've kind of backed down, and they're not asking or responding to Jesus about what they were discussing. But it tells us that they were arguing about who was the greatest. Now remember, last week we said that the disciples, like the rest of the Israelites, still looked at the Messiah as this political leader, this, this guy that was going to come in on the white horse. He was going to rescue Israel. They were going to be the national power, the world powerhouse, their own country. The Romans wouldn't be over them anymore, and the Messiah would reign from Israel. That's what they were looking for. So remember, last week they had a tough time when Jesus said that he would die and rise again. It did not fit their, their understanding of what the Messiah had come to do. And so now as they're walking, that still hasn't set in, and they're still thinking of Jesus as the Messiah, which is the good thing, but they're thinking of the Messiah as this great political leader. And so as they're walking, they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're arguing about once Jesus sets up this kind of world power, this world kingdom, and he is reigning from Israel, we're his 12, we're the closest which one of us is going to have kind of the best position? When he kind of gathers his cabinet together, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Which one of us is going to have the most power? Which one of us is going to have the most prestige and respect? Which one of us is going to have the most authority? Which one of us is going to be the greatest? Now, as they're arguing among each other, uh, surely they're making arguments like Simon the Zealot saying, hey, look, I've been fighting against the Romans for a long time in secret. I've kind of earned myself some, some cash with this. I've kind of earned myself some credibility. Surely uh, I'm going to have a high place. Maybe Peter, James, and John are saying, yeah, but you know, we've seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We were there when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. You guys didn't get to see that. We've kind of been the closest. Maybe we're going to be the greatest. Maybe we're going to be the ones with the kind of the most uh, the highest position in his new government. 
And so they're arguing and debating about, about who's the greatest. They're arguing and debating about who's going to have the most power, who's going to have the most authority, who's going to have kind of the, the most respect, who's going to be seen as kind of, here's Jesus, who's going to be his second in command? Remember at one point the disciples were arguing and they came to Jesus and they said, hey Jesus, tell us that we can sit on your right hand and the left hand of your throne, that we can be kind of higher above everybody else. So this is what the disciples are arguing about. And we see what we see is their, their definition of greatness lines up with what our world says, but what we're going to see is it does not line up with what Jesus says. It does not line up with Jesus' definition of greatness or what it means to be great. And also what we see in this is we see their selfishness. We see their pride. We see the fact that they want to be lifted up. They want to be exalted. They want the respect. They want the power. They want the prestige and authority. And so it's, it's, their, it's this sin of theirs that we see that leads us into this teaching moment from Jesus. Now, let me just take a side note here because I think it's interesting. The closer we get to Jesus, you and I are still imperfect, and we're never going to be perfect until we get to heaven. We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to fall short. We're going to mess up. That's why 1 John 1 9 tells us that uh, if we are faithful and just to forgive us or to confess our sins, that, or if we f- confess our sins, excuse me, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Before that, it says if we say we have no sins, then we make Him out to be a liar. You and I still struggle with sin. And here's the neat thing. Because God loves us, God doesn't want us to be in sin. God understands that sin leads to destruction. God understands that sin is not good. God understands that sin is not what is best for us. And so when we sin, God wants us to repent and come back to him. And so a lot of times when we think of conviction, I think sometimes we think of conviction as this negative thing or this bad thing, or it's kind of like Jesus is coming in with his King James Bible to whack us over the head and tell us how bad we've been. But understand, look at this story. Jesus does not chastise them. He does not get on to them. He just asks a question to gently prod them to understand that, hey, what you've been doing is wrong. God is a good, good father. And when we sin, God will gently prod us to say, hey, look, what you've been doing is wrong. What you've been doing is sin. Now, if we choose not to repent, if we choose not to seek forgiveness, then God can get stronger to draw us back to himself. But conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is a good thing because God uses that to draw us back to himself. And it's always done out of love and it's always done out of grace. And that really leads us to our next point, is as we've seen their pride, I want us to just take a second to see Jesus' grace and patience. In verse 35, it says, And he sat down and called the twelve. Now, we understand that they've been arguing. We understand that they're not going to tell Jesus what they were arguing about because they're embarrassed. They know that they've done wrong. So Jesus sits down, and he calls them, and he's about to teach them. And what we see here is he is very patient with them. He is very gracious with them. He is very kind to them. He does not sit here and read them the riot act. He does not sit there and yell at them and tell them everywhere they've messed up. He does not sit there and point the finger at them and tell them that they're failures and they'll never be better. God or Jesus shows them grace. 
Jesus shows them mercy. Jesus takes this as an opportunity to say, hey, look, here's where you've messed up, but let me show you how you can do better. Let me show you what it means to follow me. What it, let me show you what it means to, to do what is right instead of doing what is wrong. And in the same way, I don't know that we can ever talk too much about Jesus and his grace. In the same way in our life, Jesus is patiently working with us every single day, every single step of our life to mold us, to shape us so that we are looking less like ourselves and we are looking more like Jesus. And that process of maturity, that process of growth, it does not happen overnight. We do not go from being lost in our sins to being a Christian and being the Billy Graham of all Christians in a single day. That God takes us over years and over decades to change us and shape us and work in our life. And he is gracious and he is patient and he is merciful. And so as we see the disciples here, as we see their, their pride, their sin, their failure, at the same time we see the love and the grace and the patience of Jesus. Now, as we look at his grace and patience, yes, that drives us to worship him, but I think it also drives us to look inwardly at ourselves. As a father, I look at my life and I look at me and my kids, and there are some times when my kids do what is wrong, and I don't always respond with grace and patience. Sometimes I respond with impatience and frustration, and that's not how I model the love of Jesus. That's not how I model the love of my Father. And so for me as a father, I've got to sit back and look and think, okay, when my kids fail, when they mess up, when they sin, when they disobey, then I need to show the same grace, the same mercy, the same forgiveness that Jesus shows, the same kindness and same compassion that Jesus shows to me. If you have Co-workers, if there are people in your life that, that are difficult to deal with, in the same way, we are to respond with grace. We are to respond with mercy. We are to respond with compassion. Next thing that I want us to see is Jesus tells us where greatness comes from. And greatness comes from loving others and putting them first. Verse 35, after he has sat down with his disciples, he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. God's kingdom, greatness does not come from pushing yourself above everybody else. Greatness does not come from being the best, of, of having the most people talk about you. Greatness comes when we lower ourselves, when we place other people in front of us. In fact, greatness doesn't come by pursuing greatness. Greatness comes when we love other people and we sacrifice our needs and we sacrifice our wants to place other people as more valuable and more important than ourselves. He says, to, if anyone would be first, he must, first, or he must be last of all. To be last of all means that, that you, place, you place the needs and the wants of others, really the needs of others, above yourself. That when someone else needs something, that, that you're willing to lay aside your wants, you're willing to lay aside your time, you're willing to lay aside what you're wanting to do in order to serve and to help someone else. You see, when we look at kind of the, the, the hierarchy of our life, uh, of what comes first, second, third, here's how it's... Biblically, here's how it's supposed to go. God comes first. My family comes second. My church comes third. People outside the church come next. And then I come last. 
Be first of all, to be last of all. To be last of all means to be last. That you put yourself, you put your greatness, you put your wants, that, that you come last in your life. Now that does not mean that you don't ever get to go play golf or watch a movie or do things that you might enjoy doing. But what it means is when it comes to, hey, do I want to go play golf or do I need to go help someone with their yard, or do I need to go do this or do this that's going to help and serve someone else, when those opportunities come into conflict with each other, then we lay ourselves down, we lay what we want down to go serve and help other people. Now, this is not some kind of self-hate. This is not some kind of self-flagellation. A lot of times in, in movies and TV shows, when you see these like religious zealots, uh, they're kind of like, they've got these whips and they're hitting themselves in the back to kind of push aside the bad, I guess. This is not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, be last of all and servant of all. You place the needs and, 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 and serving other people and helping other people. That becomes more important to you than doing what you want. Remember, the disciples are being very selfish. The disciples are being very greedy and prideful. They're saying, we want to be the best. We want to be the most important. We want to be top dog. We want to be the, the, the highest in the cabinet. Jesus is saying, look, you put yourself down here. You place other people as more valuable and more important to yourself. Your needs and your wants come underneath the needs and the wants of others. In fact, when we serve people, we serve not, not trying to earn something, but we serve out of love. In John 13, 35, Jesus says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The defining factor of a Christian is to be love. Loving other believers, loving God, loving the lost, that is the defining factor of our life. And what Jesus is saying is one of the ways that love shows itself is by serving other people, by placing other people above yourself. Serving has to be intentional. Serving is a choice. It does not accidentally happen. We don't, most of the time, accidentally serve somebody. We have to choose, okay, this person needs help. I'm going to do this instead of watching this TV show. I'm going to make a phone call instead of sitting here and playing on my phone or computer. I'm going to find some way to serve and love someone else rather than doing something for myself. It has to be an intentional choice. It's not something that accidentally happens. If I make a phone call, if I write a letter, it's not just something that just happens. I have to choose to love other people. I have to choose to serve other people. And I have to choose to place them above myself. It has to be intentional. And it is a choice. Now, what are the ways that we can serve other people? Sometimes it's making a phone call. Sometimes it's, it's reaching out to somebody who might be hurting or someone who might be sick. Sometimes it's, it's making a visit. Sometimes we serve. Look, there for the past couple of months, uh, there have been uh, John Heron and a group of other men, kind of rotating men, have come up here and been working upstairs, finishing out the upstairs so that our youth, our students, will have a place to meet. If you haven't gone and looked at it, look at it. They're getting close to being done. But they do that not out of seeking praise or, or not, not to get something, but they do that because there was a need. And so they lay down their evenings so they can come up here and serve, so they can come up here and help. Let me tell you one of the greatest ways that I've seen this, this servant attitude and love since I've been here. The Ballard family has been through some difficult times over the past few months. 
But one of the things that I've heard both Tammy and Chris say is that even if they have struggled and gone through their own grief and wrestling with their grief, they have still taken time to, to talk to, to other people in their life, other kids that, that knew Rachel or, or that knew uh, um, Mr. Kenneth, and, and sharing with them and, and, and pushing them or leading them and guiding them towards Christ. And what we've seen is there have been testimonies of people who have said, I don't understand how you can stand and go through all of this. There's no way that I could do this. And when we had Mr. Kenneth's funeral, there was a young man that came up to me that, that Tammy brought up to me who wanted to accept Christ. And one of the reasons was is because he had seen the faithfulness of that family standing in the midst of pain. Loving other people, even when you're going through difficult times, is a picture of service. It's a picture of Christ. And God uses that to make an impact on the lives of others. God has called us to be servants. God has called us to place other people, their needs, what they're going through, to find value in that, to find importance into that, and to help them and to walk with them and to serve them. Where the disciples were looking at exalting themselves, Jesus is, is trying to uh, refocus their minds, uh, refocus their understanding so they're willing to lower themselves so that other people uh, can be served or exalted or helped or loved in some capacity. Now understand, at, at some point after the resurrection, the disciples get this because the disciples, all with the, with the exception of Judah, they serve God. They are persecuted. They are uh, thrown in jail. They are left alone on islands. And they, they, they lay down their lives because they understand that, that Jesus and serving other people is better and greater. Next, we see that we are to serve without seeking glory. Verses 36 to 37 say this, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but the one who sent, or him who sent me. Now, understand this word receive, it means this. It means to be, cared, to, to be concerned about, to care for, to show kindness to. Now, here's the importance of him taking a child. This is a child, probably uh, a toddler, probably uh, one to two to three years old. And he takes this child in his arm. He says, whoever shows concern, whoever shows compassion, whoever cares for one like this. In this culture, children were at about the same level socially as a slave. They didn't have value when it came to they could not work, they could not do things, uh, they could not serve in the house, they couldn't do chores, they were so little. They had about the same value when it came to society, when it came to culture, as a slave did. They were, they were overlooked, they were, they were cast aside, they were pushed aside. Parents took care of their kids, but in, in, in culture and in society, no one else wanted anything to do with children. And so understand when Jesus is, in fact... This is why in Matthew 19, 13, when children are being brought to Jesus, the disciples are trying to say, get them away. It says this, the children were brought to him that he might hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the children come to me that they may not hinder them uh, for so much belongs to the kingdom of heaven or for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And so he's taking these children 
Now remember, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest when it came to kind of the world around them. And in their culture, no one would have sought to exalt or serve or do any kind of compassion for a child. They're on the same level of slaves. There was, it never would have crossed their mind. The greatness that the disciples are pursuing is in direct contrast to Jesus saying, take these children and receive them, serve them, be compassionate to them. There is a, a contradiction there. And Jesus is saying, look, the way that you're pursuing greatness, you would never love someone, you would never serve someone who could not do something for you. And what I'm telling you, what it means to be the greatest, or if you want to be first of all, to be last of all, and servant of all, if you take these, you take those people who can do absolutely nothing for you. You take those who cannot return what you can do for them. They cannot return your service, and you love those who have absolutely nothing to offer practically. These that society has cast aside, these that society has said, no value or have no worth until they get older. These that society is thrown to the side. These are the ones that you love. These are the ones that you serve. To be a servant of all and last of all is to take even these that society is thrown to the side that cannot do anything in return for you and you love and serve and receive them. In the same way in our world, there are those who cannot return the favor. There are those that society and culture have said, you have no value. Your addiction has made you worthless. Your, your mistakes have made you valueless. And God has called us to love and to serve those that society has deemed they're not worth it. Those are the ones that we are to serve. To even place more important than ourselves is those that have great struggles. Those who have been kicked to the curb. Those are the ones that we are to love. Because what Jesus says is, he says, if you do this, whoever receives such a child in my name. When we do this, we are doing this because this is what Jesus Christ has called us to do. We are doing this out of the love that he has loved us with. We are doing this because, because he has called us to this. We are doing this because we want to reflect and honor Jesus Christ. And so we do so in his name. We love other people in the name of Jesus. We, we serve other people in the name of Jesus. And this is important because, look, left to myself, I'm not going to lower myself that much. My, my, my flesh does not want that. But the spirit, the spirit that says, I, that I've been adopted into God's family, the, the spirit that now dwells within me that wants to honor God, that wants to love God, that wants to follow God, that spirit cries out and says, lower yourself. And so I have to do this in the name of Jesus. I have to do this in the power of Jesus because on my own, I am not this selfless. On my own, this is not what I would do. But when I do so in the name and the power and the love of Jesus, when I do so with his strength, then I can lower myself and I can be the servant of all and last of all and, and, and see value in other people as even greater than than myself. And finally, we serve others because of how we have been served by Jesus. In Matthew 20, 28, it says this, even as the son of man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This tells us that Jesus Christ served us by laying down his life. Look, one of the great things about God 
One of the great things about the gospel is this. God is absolutely, 100%, without a doubt, self-sufficient. What that means is God needs nothing. He does not need me. He does not need my worship. He does not need my service. He does not need anything. But even though God does not need me, He still chose to love me and love me so much that He sent His Son to die for me. He loved me so much that even though He did not need me, He wanted me and had His Son to die for me. That that is service. Jesus said He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life This is that picture of what it means to serve. That even if there are people who can do nothing for us, who can add nothing necessarily to our life, they can't pay us back, they can't do something for us, they can't return the favor, we choose to love them. We choose to serve them. We choose to do what is good for them because that's what God did for us. God perfectly modeled what it meant to love. Jesus perfectly modeled what it meant to serve and to place the needs and the, and the, and the, and the desires and the wants of others even above yourself. That he came and gave his life because you and I could not earn our salvation. We could not get that on our own. We needed it and we could do nothing to achieve it. And so he came and he served and he gave his life so that we could be his children, so that we could be forgiven. Jesus is the perfect servant. So as we close, here's what I want us to think about. One, what is the order of our life? Remember, our life should be God, family, church, others, ourselves. What is the order of your life? Is God first? Is family first? Are you you first? What is first in your life? Who is first in your life? Who is second? Where do you fall? Do you fall at the bottom or do you place yourself above other people? Do you place yourself above your spouse? Do you place yourself above your children? Where do you fall in the hierarchy of your life? Where does God stand in the hierarchy of your life? Is the the, the order of your life the way it should be? Set and organized the way that God has called it to be. Secondly, how are we doing? How are you doing when it comes to loving God? and serving other people? How are you serving people in your family that it's easy to serve? How are you serving your wife? How are you serving your husband? How are you serving your children even? How are you serving your church? Do you show up on Sunday mornings and that's it? Look, we're glad to have you. But the Bible says that Christians are to serve. And one of the ways we serve is to serve each other. Jesus said, people will know that you love, uh, um, or people will know that you're my disciples because your love for one another. Specifically, he's talking about the love Christians have for each other. How are we serving each other in the church? And how are we serving the world around us? How are we serving those who don't know Jesus? How are we serving those who are struggling? How are we serving those who are lost into addiction or to the lies that the world has thrown at them? How are we serving other people? Look, praying for other people is a way of serving. Are we praying for people? Giving of our time is a way to serve. Are we giving of our time? Are we giving of our resources? What are we doing? What are you doing? What am I doing 
to serve. Jesus said to be first of all, or to be first, that you've got to be last of all and servant of all. There's a call on our life as believers to place other people as more important than ourselves. How are we doing? Let's pray. Father, we come up for you now. Father God, thankful for your love and your grace that you've shown us. Thankful that Jesus Christ came as a servant to give his life as a ransom for many. Father God, I pray. Father God, I pray for everyone in this room, myself included. God, that every day, multiple times a day, God, we would examine our heart to see the hierarchy of my life. Who is first and where do I stand? Father God, I pray that as a church that we would be serving each other, God, loving each other, being there for each other, praying for each other, doing what it takes as a church to to come together and and be a family that, that loves the name of Jesus. And Father God, I pray that you would help us as a church. Father God, love and serve those outside this wall, these walls. God, love and serve those who are needy. Love and serve those who, who can't do things on their own. Father God, let us love and serve to point other people to you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.